in our text is, though, the Lord doesn't dump the whole load on you at once. You know, a treasure wouldn't be a treasure if it was a truckload of gold and they backed it up and opened it up and it all dumped on you. It'd crush you. You know, maybe one bar at a time, thank you, is, is the way I need it. And the Lord is that way in how he teaches us. He's like a father. Most of you dads don't teach um, nuclear physics or uh, third-level calculus to your five-year-old, you know, unless he's a genius. You're, you take your five-year-old and you teach him the ABCs and you teach him basic numbers and you teach them, you know, all, all of the simple truths And then as they get older, you feed them more and feed them more and feed them more until finally they know more than you do. At least in my case, I had to give up on teaching my kids math because they're far beyond me. And uh, in the same way, a young believer needs the milk of the word so that they can grow with respect to salvation, 1 Peter 2.3. And then later, uh, as they grow, they need to learn just the basics. What is salvation? Who is God? How do you read and study the Bible in its context? How do you live by faith? Uh, How do you pray? All of those kind of things. And eventually they can digest some of the meat of the word. Now the word guide there in verse 12 uh, suggests that this is a process. And it's a process because what the Spirit is guiding us into is all of those things freely given to us by God And I love this other phrase in in Ephesians 3.8. Paul calls it the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's what the Spirit is guiding us into. And it's a process and it's, of course, never ending because when do you get to the bottom of unfathomable riches? Um, Many, many years ago, it's been when our kids were really little, um, Marla and I took a tour, maybe some of you have done this, through the fabulous Hearst Castle there on the central coast of California. And uh, they don't just turn you loose and say, there it is, wander around and enjoy yourself. You have to go with a guide. And the guide takes you through the castle and room to room, he points out all of these unbelievable riches that uh, William Randolph Hearst uh, put in that mansion. It happened on our tour, there was a woman whose mother had actually been a guest of Mr. Hurst when he owned the castle. And so our guide really was picking her brain on, tell me about the history and tell me what your mother told you so that he would learn more for his uh, tour as he guided tours. And there's so much to see in that castle that you can't see it in one tour. There are actually three different tours that you can go on And even then, our guide said, even though he had led this tour many, many times, he said, it's rare that I don't lead a tour and see something new that I had never noticed before because there's just so much to see there. And um, that's how our study of the Word of God should be. The Holy Spirit kind of guides you room to room and says, look at these riches of Christ here. And look at the riches of Christ here. And over there, look at that. And sometimes you're on your 20th time through and you see something and you swear, I never saw that verse before. You know, God just opens it up to you and you go, wow, look at that. Or you make connections between one verse written by one author and another verse written by another author maybe centuries later and you realize this is not a natural book. This is a supernatural book 
given to us by the Spirit of God, inspired by him, and there is no way it could have been coincidental that these two authors coordinated their story and that it fits together this way. And the point is, you'll never get to a point in this life where you say, oh yeah, I've studied the Bible, I know the Bible. No, I'm sorry. If you get there, you don't even know anything. Um, You know, some guys I remember, and I was this way, we thought, going to seminary, we're going to get all our questions about the Bible answered. Ha! You know, you only find out you didn't even know what the questions were. (laughs) And... uh, And by the time you get out, you're going, oh, my goodness, you know, there is a lot more to learn here than I knew. And so the ministry of the Spirit is progressive. But, of course, you've got to be engaged in the process, reading the Word of God over and over and meditating on it and making connections and studying it and asking the Spirit, reveal more of Christ to my soul as you go through it. A second thing Jesus makes clear about the ministry of the Spirit is it's personal. It is personal. Verse 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, in Greek, there's an unusual grammatical construction there. Because the word spirit in Greek is neuter, and Jesus uses a masculine pronoun, he, to modify it, which is against the rules of grammar. Uh, But it means this, the spirit is not a force, the spirit is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity, he is fully God in every way. And here's why it's important that you know that and that you affirm it. There is a false cult, many of them, but I'll pick on one, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They deny the personality of the Holy Spirit because they deny the Trinity. And they say the Spirit is just a force. Let me show you why that is an error. First of all, back in chapter 15, verse 26, we saw that when the Spirit comes, he will testify about Jesus. Have you ever had a force testify? Um, Testify implies words and speaking. Here we have the Spirit guiding. A force does not guide you, an impersonal force. He speaks, he hears, he reveals what he has heard. Um, Beyond this text here, when you get into the book of Acts, Peter tells Ananias that he has lied to the Holy Spirit, and then, and you don't lie to an impersonal force, you lie to a personal being. And then Peter adds, you have not lied to man, but to God. So Peter identifies the Spirit as God. Um, Paul tells us that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit. Again, you can't grieve an impersonal force. You can only grieve a person, and that being one who loves you. Paul talks about the fellowship of the Spirit. And again, you can't fellowship with an impersonal force. He is a person, and it is important. And here's the comforting truth. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this personal God dwells within you, 
and he tailors all of your experiences to where you're at in a stage of growth. It's progressive, as we saw. And he ministers his comfort to you, and he does that in several ways. He does it through the Word. Have you ever been in a particularly difficult place? And I advocate read the Bible consecutively. Don't just open it and point. You know, read it consecutively. And it is more than uncanny that often the very passage I come to that day speaks to my need in that moment. And I go, wow, thank you, Lord. He is ministering personally the comfort of the word of God to me. Or maybe he does it through another believer who shares a verse or shares an experience. And you just go, they didn't even know what I was going through. And through them, the Spirit of God builds you up through another believer. Or sometimes it's through your circumstances. Again, um, just unusual circumstances that you know, that's a God thing. God did that. And he did it to minister his comfort to me when he knew that I was down. He knew that I needed uh, that encouragement from him. And his aim in all that he does, whether sickness or encouragement, is to make you holy, to make you like Christ, to conform you to the image of Jesus if you submit to him. And Paul says, even when you don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for you, Romans eight twenty six. He's there praying for you, saying, Father, here, here's your child, my child. And he doesn't even know how to pray. And so he communicates our needs to the Father. So it's important that we don't grieve the Spirit through our sin or quench the Spirit through our unbelief but that we every day yield every area of our lives to the Holy Spirit's control. A third thing, and this is really important to note, is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is truth-centered. Jesus repeatedly in this upper room discourse refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. John 14, 17, John 15, 26 And here in John 16, 13, where he says, When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now that designation, the spirit of truth, implies, of course, that there is such a thing as knowable, unchanging truth in the spiritual realm. It is truth that is true, what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. It's always true, and it is knowable. He speaks it in words and sentences that can be understood. So, again, there are people today who challenge, oh, well, that's just propositional truth. Yeah, that's how the Spirit communicates, through words and grammatical constructions that we can understand. And the reason this is important is the postmodern influence has infiltrated the church. This is staggering. I know it's not true at FCF. I hope it's not true at FCF. But fewer than one out of three people who claim to be born again affirm that there is such a thing as absolute moral truth. Fewer than one out of three 
And you know how many Christian teenagers affirm that there is absolute moral truth? Only 6%. 6%. You got your work cut out for you in the high school group. Got to affirm to these kids there is absolute moral standards and truth. Now, this de-emphasis on truth has led to a de-emphasis in our day on doctrine. And the mantra of our day is, oh, they'll know we are Christians by our love, not by our doctrinal unity. And so, uh, in a shorter version of it is this, doctrine divides, love unites. And so we're being encouraged to set aside all the areas where we differ and come together where we agree. And that goes so far even as to set aside the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, which was the rallying cry of the Reformation. And so we're supposed to come together with our Catholic, quote, brothers and sisters and affirm that we all love one another even though they often deny the gospel. Now, I am the first to admit there, and I've met them, there are many cantankerous professing believers out there who are filled with pride about being right about every minor point of doctrine. And they are in sin. Let's just call it what it is. They're filled with pride, you know, because they are right about this point and about this little grammatical nuance and all of that. And if you don't agree with them, they rip you to shreds. That is not right. That is sin. But here's the deal. The enemy has taken that sin and used it to push people to the opposite extreme where we just throw doctrine out the window. I encourage you to do this sometime. Read through your New Testament and notice the emphasis of warnings about false teaching. It is not a minor theme. In fact, I I remember reading a story once of a seminary professor who gave his class the project, read through the New Testament this semester, and find out what is emphasized more than any other thing, and they all concluded Warnings about false teaching is the number one emphasis in the New Testament. So you can't set aside doctrine. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. In the New Testament, Paul warned about, I believe he's referring to the Antichrist. He calls him the man of lawlessness, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. He says that he will come with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Now, why did they perish? Paul says, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Paul there connects loving the truth of the gospel with being saved. He continues, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. And so rejecting the truth of the gospel, not believing it, results in eternal judgment. Now, when Jesus says the Spirit is going to reveal to the apostles the things to come, what is to come, he is probably including prophetic teaching, such as the book of Revelation. But in this context, several 
scholars point out that it mainly refers, D.A. Carson puts it this way, it mainly refers, he says, to all that transpires in consequence of the pivotal revelation bound up with Jesus' person, ministry, death, resurrection, and exaltation. Or another scholar, Leon Morris, says that the things to come is a way of referring to the whole Christian system, yet future, when Jesus spoke, and to be revealed to the disciples by the Spirit, not by natural insight. And so we have those things to come in all of the New Testament, especially in the epistles. Now, it's important to affirm that the Holy Spirit has not given any new authoritative revelation since the closing of the canon of the New Testament. In John 17, 17, Jesus affirmed that God's word is truth. And Psalm 119, 160 puts it this way, the sum of your word is truth. Second Peter 1 says that God's promises in the scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness. So we have what we need to be godly people in our New Testament. And as you study the Bible, you need to pray that the Spirit will give you illumination, but technically he's not going to give you new revelation. That is to say, you know, truth that isn't in here. He will open up these truths to you instead uh, and uh, show you what's in the Bible. One other point. The Spirit never reveals to anyone anything contrary to what is in the Scriptures. And I've encountered people, oh, the Spirit told me or the Lord told me, and it's totally contrary to the Bible. I'll just say to my young sisters, it's often young sisters in Christ who say, the Lord told me I should marry this unbeliever. And my response is, no, he did not. Because the Lord told you in Scripture, don't be unequally yoked. So the Lord never tells you to do something contrary to what is in the written Word of God. So the ministry of the Spirit then is progressive. It is personal, tailored to each one. He unfolds to us the truth we need as we need it. Uh, It is truth-centered. And then finally, the ministry of the Spirit is Christ-centered, and it's Christ-glorifying. And that's the point of verses 14 and 15. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. And therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. In case you missed it, Jesus there is implicitly affirming his deity. What mere man... Or, even if you take the Jehovah's Witnesses error, what highest created being could state what Jesus says there in verse 14 and 15? That it is the job of Almighty God, the Holy Spirit, to glorify me. You know, if any created being said that, he would be uh, in rebellion against Almighty God. And Jesus there says, all things that the Father has are mine. Again, what mere man could say such a thing? Jesus is affirming his deity. 
The Holy Spirit's role then is not to glorify himself, but to glorify Christ. So he doesn't call attention to himself. He calls attention to Christ. Uh, The Holy Spirit does not lead us to focus on our experiences. But when you are filled with the Spirit, your focus is on Jesus Christ and who he is and his glory. Um, The Spirit exalts Christ. Uh, Dr. Carson again says it this way, Nothing brings more glory to our exalted Lord Jesus than for his followers to become steeped in all truth concerning him. Glory comes to Jesus as the truths of the gospel are established in the lives of men. Now, when Jesus says that all things that the Father has are mine, and the Spirit is going to take those things and disclose them to the apostles, Again, he is referring to what I referred to earlier, the inexhaustible or unfathomable riches of Christ. All of the Bible points to Christ, the Old Testament and the New. I think there's a book out on the book table that makes that, that very point, and I read one of those recently, uh, that uh, all of Scripture points to Christ. And the point is, If the Spirit is working in your life, you're going to be reveling in Christ. You're going to be exalting Jesus Christ. You're going to be singing praises to Christ. You're going to be bubbling over telling other people about how wonderful Christ is. The Spirit's work is manifested in a person becoming like Christ and a person glorying in Christ. Now, we can also plumb these verses on some insights into the nature of the triune God, uh, you'll notice here that the three persons of the Trinity are distinct. They are not all just kind of different manifestations of God. They're distinct, and yet each is fully God. Each person has different roles or functions. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. Um, The Spirit does not act on his own initiative, verse 13. That means he's not doing an end run, doing his own thing. But he acts in dependence on the Father and the Son, just as the Son acted and spoke only what he heard from the Father. So the Spirit only speaks what he hears. And so he completes the revelation of God's Son to us. But the three members of the Trinity are co-equal as God, and yet they are one God, uh, distinct in their functions. So how do we apply all this? Well, first of all, I'd encourage you, apply apply this to your walk with God, to your walk with God. Ask yourself, is the Holy Spirit progressively guiding you into all the truth, and especially Are you growing to understand more about the blessed person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he becoming more and more precious to you, all that he is? And do you see the Spirit's personal ministry in your life as he orchestrates circumstances, as suddenly when you're reading the Bible, truth jumps out at you that applies directly to where you're at that very day, that kind of experience. And as you... Study the word. Are you growing to understand more deeply how it's all one pointing to Christ and to the glory of Christ and the gospel? And then is your life becoming more Christ-centered, more Christ-glorifying, 
and more Christ-like. You can test it against that list in Galatians 5 of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, if as I run through that, honestly, you're saying, well, it's kind of a stretch. You know, that's not really true of me. There could be two causes. First of all, you may not be walking daily in the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit, as I mentioned earlier. To walk in the Spirit means step by step, depending on the Spirit, crying out to Him, saying, Lord God, would you be my strength in this situation? And Paul says, if we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Or another way he puts it in Ephesians 5 is being filled with the Spirit, and he contrasts and compares it with being filled with wine. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And just as when somebody's under the influence of alcohol, they are under another influence, so when we are filled with the Spirit, we are under His influence. And He produces holiness in us. And it's a lifelong process, but my point is this. You have to practice it every day. You have to walk with the Spirit today and tomorrow and the next day and the next. And if you fall, then you get up and you start walking with the Spirit again. And it's as you do it, you learn just as a child falls a lot. Hopefully, as you get older, you learn to walk better and not fall as often. The other possibility, if you really aren't experiencing the things of the Spirit in your life, is you may not have the Spirit. You may never have truly trusted in Jesus Christ because the Bible is clear the Spirit is given to every sinner who comes to the cross and believes in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that, I want to close the message by just giving you the Spirit's invitation to you. This is almost the last verse of the last book of the Bible. Here's what it says, Revelation 22:17. The Spirit and the bride, the bride is the church, say, come, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Is that you? Are you thirsty? Come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's the invitation to everyone. Come to Jesus. And he will give you that living water that wells up inside of you. And it's like a well, he says in John 7. And he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would help all of us to be spirit-filled, spirit-possessed people, and that we would grow in godliness, in Christ-likeness as your spirit fills us. And I know, Lord, speaking personally, I struggle against so many things, and I know my brothers and sisters do too. It's a battle that we're in. And there are sometimes casualties, but thank you that if we have your spirit, those casualties are not fatal, that there is healing and restoration 
And so I pray that you would encourage my brothers and sisters here to yield to your spirit this very minute and the next and the next and all week long that we would experience the supernatural life of walking by means of your spirit so that Jesus will be glorified in and through us. I pray in his name. Amen.